This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Can Sesame Street's Big Bird help fight terrorism? And what does a children's television show tell us about the challenges and paradoxes of multicultural education? It was more of a kind of cultural analysis of the program and of the creation of the program and how the creators of Sesame worked to to grapple with these dilemmas of how to translate an American multicultural curriculum into the Nigerian context and just how to address multiculturalism and conflict amidst ongoing conflict and deep divisions um, in the country. And so that was really my goal. My guest today is Naomi Moland, professorial lecturer at the American University in Washington, D.C. In her new book entitled, Can Big Bird Fight Terrorism? Naomi explores a children's television show in conflict-affected Nigeria that is designed to teach ethnic and religious tolerance and to build national unity. The way that I analyze Sesame Square, um, you know, there were messages on the program that were direct counter-messages to what children were hearing from Boko Haram. Naomi uncovers lessons for multicultural education in general, which she speaks about in relation to the current pandemic and the protests against racism and colonialism that have recently spread to many countries worldwide. Naomi Moland, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about the, the, the various tensions that are currently happening in Nigeria, and, and in particular about Boko Haram? Definitely. So Boko Haram has, um, has been an insurgency, an insurgent movement that has been active in Nigeria for about a decade, sort of began in, in 2009, so a little over a decade now. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's, there's about 30,000 people that have been killed um, during the conflict. So it's been a very, very bloody conflict that has lasted over these, over these 10 years. I think the height of the violence was maybe around 2014 or so, um, but there have been recent attacks as well as recently as, as February and, and prob- probably since then. That's the most recent um, attack that I've seen. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a extremist, um, movement that has been motivated by inequality and sort of, um, government failure to, to support and provide services for, uh, people, especially in Northern Nigeria, in the part of the country that's predominantly Muslim, um, in, in Northern Nigeria, and also motivated by ideological, uh, motivations against, against Christianity, but also against who they consider more moderate Muslims. And so it's uh, Boko Haram advocates for a uh, strict reading of Sharia law, a strict implementation, I should say, of, of Sharia law, and um, an intolerance of non-Muslims and not who they consider true Muslims. The name Boko Haram has been defined as saying Western education is forbidden. There's been a lot of sort of discussion and controversy around whether that's actually what their name means. Um, it, most people that I spoke with said that it, it's more uh, anti-elitist movement. And when they say Western education, that to them sort of represents um, elites who they believe have abandoned true Islam and who've also abandoned Northern Nigeria and have become corrupt, their leaders and that sort of thing. Um, but it has also had a very direct um, anti-education, anti-Western education push. It didn't at the beginning necessarily, but it definitely evolved into that, um, including that there there was, of course, the infamous attack 
of kid, kidnapping girls, almost 300 girls in Chibok in um, 2014. And um, that was... Uh, that was unfortunately only one of many, many attacks um, against uh, many, many kidnappings of girls and, and students in general and killings of teachers, uh, just destruction of schools across northern Nigeria, particularly in, northern, in northeast Nigeria that way. Um, so there's, there's also been a disproportionate um, effect of Boko Haram on girls and women with systematic rape and abuse and kidnapping of women and forced marriages. And in the past uh, four or five years, there's also been a very high incidence of using girls as uh, suicide bombers and mm. um, deploying. And that's more than ISIS has ever done that, more than any organization around the world has done that. Um, Boko Haram has become infamous for using young, young women and, and girls as, as suicide bombers, um, partly because they are better able to be... They're, they're less likely to be suspected if they enter into uh, a public space or a market that way. So they've disproportionately targeted uh, women and girls as well. Hmm. Um, and so how has the Nigerian government responded or tried to address some of this violence, this terrorism, this extremism? So again, you know, over, over the last decade, there's been different movements, some of them very um, sort of scorched earth type movements where they've they've just massively rounded up people who are suspected of being Boko Haram members, particularly in northeast Nigeria again. Um, and so that was, there were a lot of reports of, of them rounding up anyone who looked Muslim and, and uh, accusing them of being a Boko Haram member or Boko Haram sympathizer. And there's reports of like 7,000 deaths in, um, in detention, a lot of extrajudicial arrests and um, torture that takes place in detention and, and 7,000 deaths, as well as like 1,200 uh, people that have been executed ex- extrajudicially in, ad- in addition to people that have died in detention. And that report that I'm citing from was a Human Rights Watch report from 2015. So it's also likely that um, t- from what I've heard, that kind of thing has continued. I haven't seen more recent reports of it, but I, I have seen reports in the last one or two years of continued extrajudicial detention and and sort of rounding up of people who are suspected as, as Boko Haram members and not having access to fair trial or or any kind of fair process. And does that that must galvanize sort of support among some people for Boko Haram and other groups that are sort of uh, against the way in which the government is responding? Absolutely. And we see this in in many conflicts around the world where, where the vast majority of the population feels trapped between an extremist group and the government, um, both of whom are acting in ways that do not align with human rights, do not align with, with any kind of um, wartime conventions. And so a lot of times the population is kind of caught in the middle. And when, you, when, when many Northeast Nigerians do not see their government as protecting them in any kind of way, but also as preying on them, um, that has serious consequences for their trust in the government. And yes, like you said, that's a common, it's a commonly, commonly assumed to motivate people to join extremist groups like that. Mm. And there's, you know, many parts of the world, and Boko Haram was doing this for a while, where, where sometimes extremist groups like this provide security, they, at some point, they're flying flags, their own flag in, um, in Northeast Nigeria. So they start taking on the uh, responsibilities of the state and people start seeing them as, okay, this group is 
providing protection for me, maybe providing food, maybe providing money or jobs or income. Um, so how am I supposed to choose who my allegiance is to if, if that's if that's where that, that kind of security is coming from. And it's almost acting like a state that way. So within this rather complex context in Nigeria enters a, a version of Sesame Street called Sesame Square. Can you explain what Sesame Square is and what it's trying to do? Absolutely. So, so there's more than 30 versions of Sesame Street around the world, and they are not just the American version dubbed into local languages. They are co-produced versions of the show, which means that they're produced by uh, people at Sesame Workshop in New York and also people in the local context. Um, producers, so the, the vast majority of people who worked on Sesame Square in Nigeria were Nigerian. And that includes the puppeteers, the cameramen, the editors, the producers, the script writers. The vast majority of them were Nigerian, uh, but there was some oversight from the, from the New York office. Um, so Sesame Square was uh, begun, began airing in 2011, and it was, you know, like all sort of Sesame programs around the world, it was, it was produced to help increase educational access for preschoolers. So it taught a lot about basic academic skills, ABCs, one, two, threes. And, you know, at the, at the preschool level, you have the academic skills like, you know, near and far and up and down and cold and hot and, you know, just all kinds of vocabulary. And they also have always taught, just like the American Sesame, about um, cooperation, taking turns, you know, being friends, how to be a good friend, all those kinds of things. And they also had these objectives around diversity and tolerance and national unity. And those were the objectives that I was the most interested in studying and kind of seeing how those curricular objectives translated from the United States into a very different context with very different dynamics of, of diversity. So, you know, all of these things are also always boiled down to preschool level. So, you know, at a very basic level, it's like we, you know, we should be kind to people who are different from us and we should um, learn about people who are different from us. And, and you know, very basic, very basic level of, of messages that way. Can you give an example of, you know, of, of a particular episode that talks about some of these issues in the Nigerian context that you just previously explained? Certainly. There's a, there's a few episodes, uh, for example, that will have um, like children from different regions in Nigeria, maybe three or four children from the sort of major socioeconomic, I should say, excuse me, the major ethnic groups in Nigeria. Um, there's more than 200, 250 ethnic groups in Nigeria, but the three largest ones are Igbo, Hausa, and Yoruba. Um, but they only make up about 60% of the population altogether. So there's hundreds of others as well. So for example, an episode of Sesame Square may have um, uh, children, three or four children sharing foods from their own region of, of Nigeria and saying, you know, this is a goosey soup. We eat this in the southeast of Nigeria. This is yams. We eat this in the pounded yam. We eat this in the southwest of Nigeria and kind of teaching each other about their customs a little bit. And then at the end of that particular segment, Zobi, who's one of the main monsters on the show, one of the main Muppets, he's a big blue monster. He says something like, oh, and here on Sesame Square, we eat yams. And he talks about all the different ways that, that he eats yams. And 
that's an interesting segment because yams are a uh, universal food across Nigeria. And we're not talking like the Thanksgiving orange yams that Americans are used to, but more of a, it's like a tuber. It looks like a log. It's huge. It's m- more similar to like a potato or, or cassava. And so, um, so that's, that was seen as kind of a unifying food across the, across the country. And so that, that, that segment kind of shows, you know, we eat different things. We're from different parts of the country, but we also eat some of the same things. And we, we have those commonalities as well as those differences, which is, you know, one of the goals I think of, of multicultural education is to sort of see what are our differences and what are our commonalities that way. And the creators worked, worked very hard to make Sesame Square itself a kind of neutral ethnic space where, and religious space where um, the, the two main characters have names that cannot be tied to any ethnic group. The name of the show, Sesame Square, there is some creators of the show who would have loved for it to be in one of the local languages, but because they wanted it to appeal to the whole country, they had to make the name of the program in, in English, which is the only official language in Nigeria. And it's, you know, the language of the colonizer, but it, it is sort of the, the language of business and, um, and education in Nigeria. So they named it Sesame Square. Huh. So, I mean, all of these different efforts to find unity in diversity, so to speak, um, you know, they went to great lengths, the creators, to, to try and do so. That's one of my favorite phrases, and because I love to pick it apart as well. It's a very common phrase. There's many countries around the world that have it as their slogan. Of course, in the United States, we have e pluribus unum, and, you know, out of many, one is similar. And I think, I know India's, I think, slogan is unity and diversity. And, and many, I think probably also the EU, I don't know, many places around yeah, the world. Indonesia, yeah. Asi, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations often talks about unity and diversity. Right. Yeah, very, very common worldwide, it seems. Right. And I both love it. And I think that kind of when the rubber hits the road, I'm very confused as to what that actually looks like. You know, <laughs> what, where... That seem seems contradictory. I know people are saying it's not contradictory. We can have unity and diversity, but when you know when we get into the nitty gritty of initiatives to teach this, I think that's when you see some of these these contradictions coming out. Is how do we simultaneously celebrate diversity and also promote unity? And I also agree they don't have to be contradictory goals, but they when they hit against each other, there often is some. So so did you see any of that in in Sesame Square? So I think the mo- where I saw that the most was um, was sort of looking at, at the conversations that the producers would have and the creators of the show would have around how do we both, yeah, how do we both celebrate the diversity and also um, celebrate the unity? And I think where that came out was, was this concern from many of the creators themselves that celebrating diversity can actually be divisive. And one of the ways that can happen is because, because of the stereotypes that often result when you are celebrating diversity. You know, if we think about kind of typical multicultural efforts in the United States over the years and in many countries around the world, it's sort of um, this ethnic group does this and this ethnic group does that. And, and there, was, there was an episode in, in the American Sesame Street in the 1990s that had a white girl go over to her black girl, black friend's house. And it was called Playdate, I think. And um, and while they were at the black girl's house, they ate collard greens and I think fried chicken and braided their hair. So then, of course, there are people that were like, that's so stereotypical. Are you saying that all black people do that? Are you saying that, um, 
you know, that, that's, that's folkloristic and simplistic and reductive, etc. Um, but then, especially for young children, it, there's a question of sort of, do they have to learn about some of those basic, maybe kind of superficial differences like food and clothing and um, language? I mean, language is much more complicated maybe than food and clothing um, and holidays. Do they have to learn about those things before they can understand um, hybridity and intersectionality and structural racism and all these more complex uh, topics that we we talk about. What do you think? I mean, because that is a very common sort of response, right, to the stereotyping. You have to learn the basics right, before you get to these more complex theories. I Sometimes I also find that um, educators sort of uh, basically take that more complex, difficult issue to answer and just pass it on to further levels of education. They say, oh, that'll be learned in in university. We don't have to deal with it here. Right. You'll learn that in doctoral studies. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what the undergrad professors say, right? So (laughs) kind of keep keep bumping it down the road. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think there's a lot of a lot of um, pushback against that idea, maybe especially now of sort of saying like kids can understand more complex um, things than we're giving them credit for. And, and I, part of what a similar argument that sometimes comes up along those same lines is that kids don't see race or that kids don't, you know, see difference and that we, and there were definitely some of the creator, Nigerian creators of Sesame who said similar things like that. They said, you know, by emphasizing diversity, are we just stamping this difference that kids don't see anyway? You know, like there was one quote I remember from one of the creators I interviewed, she said, you know, a a Christian child in Nigeria isn't going to see a girl in a hijab on the program and say, you know, um, she's a heretic or, or she's a fanatic. She's a jihadist. You know, that's her parents who are going to say that. Um, and so how can, are, but are we, by discussing those issues and being worried about that possibility and, and showing those things, are we kind of passing those those fears onto children and those tensions onto children? And so... Um, I think I think that's very delicate and very complex, but I, I do think there is more and more evidence that that children can understand um, the complexity of of even hybrid identities. You know, so that's some a thing that is often prescribed when we think of how can we help to reduce these kinds of stereotypes and these binaries between different groups of people is partly by emphasizing you know hybrid identities. So, hmm. um, so one one example of that on, on Sesame Square that was really fascinating was the decision of to put some characters in headscarves or to, to put some girls, uh, Muslim girls on the program in headscarves. And some of the girls that they found to be on the program actually didn't wear headscarves, um, but they asked them to wear them to be on the show mm. because they needed that Muslim representation. And again, this, this also goes back to the medium of television, that you have to have a visual representation of diversity um, in a sort of simplistic representation of diversity. You know, many times these representations of diversity that were much discussed were on the screen for one second, you know. And so, um, but later when I was discussing this with, with some of the other creators, you said maybe another thing to do in the future would to be to say, these girls are Muslim. They don't wear headscarves. Some girls who are Muslim do wear headscarves. Some girls who are Muslim wear headscarves only when they go to school. Some wear headscarves only when they're outside of their house or, you know, kind of trying to start picking apart the complexity of, of identity that way. Um, even but for... putting it down the road for the next <laughs> yeah, Sesame exactly. Square, not right, doing exactly. it right away. Exactly. Right. I was saying, I was saying this, stay tuned for next season <laughs> when, we'll, when we'll address it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so does Sesame Square, um, 
you know, does does their message of tolerance work in the end in your in your mind? So first, first I'll say that that my study was not an impact study, um, that I very mm. much focused on, it, it was more of a kind of cultural analysis of the program and of the creation of the program and how the creators of Sesame worked to, to grapple with these dilemmas of how to translate an American multicultural curriculum into the Nigerian context and just how to address multiculturalism and conflict amidst ongoing conflict and deep divisions um, in the country. And so that was really my goal. Um, Sesame Workshop itself did a couple of impact studies themselves. They did a viewership study to try to, you know, find out how many children were watching it across the program. How many are watching so it? So that this was the viewership study, I believe, was back in 2014, I think. And it was there was about 7.7 7 million children. It was shown to be the most popular, the second most popular children's television program in the country. Wow. Um, so definitely had some some legs and some um, some traction there and was was viewed uh, by by many children. And then they did also show um some gains in academic skills of the of the children that they studied in Nigeria, academic skills such as alphabet awareness, that sort of thing. I think there were objectives about hand washing that were shown to have gains, um, and I think gender equality, and perhaps one other objective that I'm forgetting right now from hmm. from that study. Um, so another point I'll make on that is is studying the effects of tolerance education is extremely difficult as well. Um, because especially be measuring if it might have a long-term impact on children. So Sesame Workshop, again, has done this kind of research for, for decades on the American version and on other versions as well. And they've measured, they've tried to measure it by saying, you know, um, would after, you know, before sort of pre-test, post-test model, where before watching a series of, of Sesame episodes, would a child want to be friends with someone who was different from them? And afterwards, would they want to be friends with someone who was different from them? Um, they've also measured if children recognize certain cultural symbols. Like I know that was, a, that was mm -hmm. one of the curricular um, goals of the Israeli-Palestinian version of Sesame Street at one point was do they recognize sort of cultural symbols of the other um, to, as a way of learning about the other that way. Um, so, so this very, it's very, I would argue, even if, even if a post-test of that kind of study shows, yes, now a child, a three-year-old says, I want to be friends with someone who's different from me after watching several episodes of, of Sesame, that shows us something, but to me, it, it doesn't show us enough, or it doesn't show us a lot. It's, it's very hard to know whether or not that that behavior would be translated into long-term attitudes or long-term um, outlooks or long-term behaviors towards the other that way. Um, right. That said, I think I think there's definitely the potential that it that it can. And I know I know many people in the United States who grew up watching a diverse cast on Sesame Street who may not have been exposed to to diversity otherwise. And we we build somewhat off of like the sort of classic contact theory on this where we say children who have contact with people who are different from them are more likely to be respectful and tolerant and um, peacefully coexist with others. And so maybe mm -hmm. television can almost act as a substitute when that in-person integration is not possible or is not is not right. happening. And this, of course, is also happening, you know, students aren't only watching 
Sesame Square or Sesame Street. Yes. They're also nowadays being inundated with so many other images and ideas and, and media platforms. And I mean, isn't, isn't, well, does Boko Haram use social media to the same extent that, say, ISIS does, where they sort of have this very elaborate social media uh, and online recruitment systems and platforms mm-hmm. that that seem to be very powerful is that also happening for a lot of the children who might be watching sesame square they're also you know engaging with um this other content mm-hmm. that might actually have uh, opposing values being being shown in in it mm-hmm. so so partly there's a difference of age group there right where we would think mm-hmm. that most of the most of the people that might be engaging with social media and might be more um exposed and vulnerable to to media recruiting efforts by Boko Haram would be older, you know, young adults, teenagers, that type of thing, right. whereas obviously that's not the, the target audience for um, Sesame Square, which is targeted somewhat younger, although some of the evidence that, that I know Sesame found is that kids of all ages were watching it because many Nigerian households have multiple kids of different ages, of course, and cousins over and a lot of extended families, so there might be kids of much more than the kind of two to five year old set who are watching the the show um but i do think of course that that young even young kids still see even if they're not engaged themselves in watching in social media whatever they they see what's happening around them they see the news that their parents are watching they see they might see the social media that their brothers or sisters or parents are are engaged in and you know that two-year-olds pick up phones and can somehow find my Facebook account and, you know, get, start looking through it or whatever. So, so there's, there's that as well. And I, I do think going back to your question of, of whether that's been a, a, a tool of Boko Haram, absolutely. Um, Boko Haram was declared um, the West African branch of the Islamic state at some point. So mm. there, there's even, and there's some confusion on whether or not it sort of splintered and, and part of Boko Haram became ISWA, ISWA, which is Islamic State West Africa. Uh, but there's definitely a history of connections between ISIS and, and Boko Haram, including, I know I've read articles about them sort of providing media and recruitment training to Boko right. Haram. So there's right. absolutely that, that same kind of technique that way. And there has been the belief, I think, by the U.S. State Department and other um, international actors that, you know, you should sort of fight media with media, you know, that there's, that, that, that these organizations are very savvy in how they use media of all kinds to quote unquote radicalize and recruit, uh, members and that, that that's a tool that must also be, that we must also use if we're going to sort of provide counter messages that way. And so like there's a U.S. State Department satellite channel in northern Nigeria that's called Arewa 24. I'm not positive it's still on air. It was a couple of years ago, I think it is. And that's where Sesame Square broadcasts in northern Nigeria. Um, but that was very much, you know, there were def- there was definitely programming on there that was meant to sort of counter, counter extremism mm-hmm. and um, advocate for more uh, peaceful and democratic, you know, values and ways of life. Um, and then, you know, there was definitely, I, I think, the way that I analyzed Sesame Square, um, you know, there were messages on the program that were direct counter messages to what children were hearing from Boko Haram. I think the, hmm. the pro-school messages, you know, there's a lot of messages on, on Sesame Square that school is fun and we should go and it's, 
you know, we can see all our friends and the teachers are so friendly and, you know, all these positive messages about school. There's also very explicit um, messaging that girls should go to school, you know, that girls should uh, be, um, you know, the girl, the, that girls should go to school just the same as boys. They should play with boys and th- that girls can do all the same thing as boys and whatnot. So that, you know, so the pro, pro-education messages generally, I think, were directly against Boko Haram's messages, especially as Boko Haram was, was calling Western education sinful and forbidden. Um, and, and as Boko Haram was, you know, bombing schools, kidnapping students, killing teachers, all of these things, that was a very direct counter message. The, the other two, I would say, counter messages are both for girls' equality, um, which, as I said before, Boko Haram is very heavily targeted and, um, and oppressed and, you know, sexually abused and raped and killed women, particularly. Um, and then just the general tolerance messages are very anti, very counter to Boko Haram's messages that believe mm-hmm. that anyone who doesn't believe in their version of Islam um, should be killed or should be at least taken out of power that way. So what are some of these problems that you see with these, these messages? Well, I think... I think the first one that I mentioned about being a pro, the pro-school message um, really feeds into one of my, my main dilemmas that comes up in the book, which is that what I call the public curriculum, and that's, by that I mean kind of what kids are learning from the community around them and what they see around them, um, how does that undermine and contradict the messages that were seen on, on Sesame Square? So, um, so telling kids to go to school and that they should go to school and that school is fun and that school is important in an area where schools are, schools have been bombed and teachers have been killed and students have been kidnapped for going to school runs the risk of just seeming completely unrealistic and almost, and al- you know, unrealistic to the point of sort of offensive, I think, mm. in some cases of kind of like, how can you say we should be going to school when this is happening around us. You know, how can you be telling our children that they should go to school, that school is fun, that um, that school is a safe place for us to be when it's not? And It's a bit out of touch with reality, isn't it? Yes. And I think that that's, that's something that Sesame has absolutely faced in other contexts as well. Um, and it's something they've grappled with in the United States since the founding of the show in, in 1969 and, and in many other countries around the world is, do they show reality or do they show what they hope reality will become? You know, do they, how do they both acknowledge the realities and the very frightening and violent context that children are currently living in while also giving children hope for mm. the future and, um, and hope for what society should look like. And again, that's something they've, they've grappled with in the United States. And there, there are people very early on in the United States version of the show who advocated for making this show a little bit more radical. There was, you know, there were people that were saying everybody on Sesame Street should go on a rent strike. And um, <laughs> especially Oscar the Grouch, who deserves to have a, a better quality of life than living in a trash can. Yeah, you know, that he should... yeah better home. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, so that's been something that I know Sesame has grappled with um, in many different countries. That, you know, there's, I remember reading an article about the Israeli-Palestinian version again, where there were some of the producers there who wanted to have I think it was like an episode about bats and the bats were going to represent Israeli fighter jets and the kids were going to dive under their desks whenever they heard the bats. And, you know, and, and, and then other producers of the show were like, no, that's, that's too scary. That's too, that's too realistic. Um, we need, mm-hmm. and, and of course the Israeli co-producers of that show did not 
agree with that representation of what the bats represented. You know, so there was uh, this very tense kind of uh, discussions of of how to how to both represent reality and also um, help children be hope, hopeful and feel safe. And so, you know, what can we learn from from your study on Sesame Square in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, very extreme cases of Boko Haram? But what can we learn about, say, multicultural education in a place like America or a place like the United Kingdom in the wake of these anti-racist, anti-colonial protests that we see sort of cropping up um, in this time of COVID? So this, I mean, it brings us back to sort of another paradox, I think, um, which is that maybe sort of more um, more critical or anti-racist approaches are both more important in times like these and harder <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're more... Um, and, and, and I think, I think, you know, a lot of people who study education, you know, during conflict, there's always arguments about, you know, do you sort of wait until the conflict is over to address these intergroup prejudices and try, try to build peaceful coexistence. But in so many conflicts around the world, including, uh, I think, in, in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, uh, the conflicts, as we're describing them, don't end in the same way that maybe wars used to end. And I mean... Or, or, I mean, I think we can say that wars never usually had like a clean end date where everything was suddenly back to normal either. Uh, but yeah. but I think when we have these prolonged con- conflicts and tensions, um, some, some scholars have sort of said, okay, during conflict, maybe the most we can expect is to, to humanize the other, to help to humanize the other. But something like integration in some countries it might seem too radical or too, too big of an ask um, during certain circumstances. And so I think that came up some in Nigeria was sort of, okay, during this current conflict is, is having Christian and Muslim children play together on the show and be friends and talk to each other. Is that almost seem too unrealistic and too um, radical that, that maybe we can have a little like distance, but still help to recognize the other and to, to appreciate the other and to, and to find our commonalities that way. So I think that's another sort of antidote to this perhaps overemphasis on diversity is that we look at, at the commonalities. And Sesame Square, between different groups, and Sesame Square did that a lot, and Sesame Street in the United States has done that a lot too. And again, it gets to kind of that contradiction of we're different and we're the same, you know, right, of the, right. the diversity and unity and whatnot. Um, but I have been thinking a lot about about the current racial unrest in the United States as well, and um, and Sesame has responded. Sesame Workshop has responded um, in the past weeks in I think extremely impressive ways. They are always ready to tackle extremely difficult um, issues, and and they've been critiqued in the past and recently of you know focusing too much on individual racism and not on sort of structural and systemic racism and, and, and sort of focusing too much on if we can be friends, if, if white kids and black kids can be friends, then everything will be okay. And, and sort of that being superficial and maybe not representing the real um, struggles that, that, that are taking place and that need to, and the, and the, the work that needs to take place. Um, so so recently they had a, a Sesame Town Hall with CNN um, that they co, 
co-produced with CNN. And at the beginning of it, you know, there was, Alma was with his father and Alma was saying, you know, I mean, your listeners should look it up and listen to it because I can't quote it exactly. But, you know, the, Alma was saying, why are these people angry? Why are these people so, you know, protesting? And, and Elmo's father explains protesting. And then Elmo's father, like, explains racism. And I don't know, I'm not sure, but I don't know that the show has ever explicitly defined and named racism that way. You know, a lot of times, you know, over the five decades of the show, they've always said, you know, all people are, we should respect all people and be friends with everyone. And, but, but this was sort of a, a shift on their part, I think, that has been called for um, by them and by many other people. Have sort of we have to name that this is that this is racism and that this is violence against black people and violence against black bodies and and not just saying that you know we should all get along and be friends and um, and the format of that was the format of that CNN Sesame Street town hall was uh, where where kids kids and parents could send video questions in. And they would be answered by sort of experts in a very child-friendly manner. And then there'd be kind of every once in a while some Muppets would come and introduce an expert or something. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't a typical episode of Sesame Square, yeah, yeah. Sesame Street at all. But there were some tough questions that they put on, on, the, on the town hall. You know, there was a, a young boy who said, um, you know, I thought police are supposed to help us. How come some police are not helping us? Um, or some police are doing bad things, you know, and uh, and those are you know, those are the tough questions that kids are ready to discuss, I think, and that kids are asking. And so um, organizations like Sesame, I think, have to and, and do sort of tackle that. The, I don't remember who was responding to that question, but I, I think the, the response was sort of like um, there's some bad cops. Out, out there and um right. which doesn't necessarily address the sort of systemic it's, racism of right. uh, of the it's, systems uh, it, it goes back to kind of an individual causation of uh it'll be really interesting to see if this pivot that you you know we might be seeing in sesame street in america if we see a similar pivot in the future in sesame square in nigeria for instance it'd be very interesting to follow that Absolutely. And to kind of see, and, and I, I do want to emphasize too, that there have been people who have been saying that sort of typical multiculturalism and celebrating diversity is too simplistic and folkloristic for like a century. <laughs> this is, you know, this, these are debates that have been going on in that field since really since the early 1900s, if not before of people saying, you know, oh, let's all celebrate and wear, wear our ethnic costumes and have international food day. And other people that are like, no, we need to tackle you know, we need to have rent strikes and, you know, tackle the inequalities. And so, so that's been a, a, a tension for a very long time. And I think it kind of, it's interesting to question why does a sort of perhaps superficial folkloristic version of multiculturalism keep winning? Mm. <laughs> and, and, and probably the answer to that is that it's, that it's easier and that it seems more palatable to young kids and easier to explain to um, young kids. But I think that they're, there have been and there continue to be people that are working very hard to figure out how can we make this more more anti-racist and more um, confronting the uh, structural inequalities. Naomi Molan, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure of talking today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, so all the best. Naomi Moland is professorial lecturer at the American University. Her latest book, Can Big Bird Fight Terrorism?, was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. 
A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.